lose the wonder of Easter. I gave you alluded to this in the kids' talk. We don't uh, typically lose our wonder at chocolate or at holidays or at, at time with family or at uh, the football. Uh, but we so often do lose our wonder at, the, at this amazing reality, really, that the, the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins and came back to life. How could you lose your wonder at that? But we, but we do. We do. Uh, so today I'm hoping that we'll rediscover some of that wonder as we consider Jesus' resurrection. I pray that, that the, the Lord God will, will capture our hearts again. In particular, I want us to understand how trusting in Jesus but believing in his resurrection uh, really completely revolutionizes how we respond to suffering. Right? It, uh, believing in the resurrection makes a massive difference uh, to how we respond to suffering. Uh, so I want to read this passage from 1 Peter. We, we had, I did a passage from 1 Peter on Friday. Uh, we're doing another one today. It's there in the Connect card. Uh, let's read from 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, from verse 3, if you open up in the Connect card. Uh, Peter says, uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, uh, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, uh, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them uh, was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you uh, by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we do confess our hard hearts, our, our, our sinful hearts, and that so often we're filled with much more wonder for uh, things in this world at this time of year. Uh, not, not bad things, chocolate, family, uh, even, even a day off from work. Uh, we're filled with much more wonder with these things than we are uh, with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray this day that you would speak through me as we look at this passage, that you would encourage us, uh, that you would uh, capture our hearts with the glory of our Lord Jesus' resurrection, uh, that you would help us to see how, how uh, believing in his resurrection and knowing that it's true, actually transforms how we deal with uh, all the suffering that life throws, us, uh, throws our way. Uh, please help us to concentrate. Help me to be faithful in, and clear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, so before we uh, look at the details of this passage from First Peter, I wanted to get you all to uh, think about two questions. Uh, the, the first question uh, is, what is what is the biggest trial that you're experiencing in your life at the moment? By trial, I, I'm thinking, uh, what, what's your hardships? What, uh, what, in, in what ways are you suffering? I'll give you some different categories. Maybe you're, you're experiencing a physical trial. Uh, perhaps you're someone who struggles with chronic pain. Uh, uh, you've had constant sickness. Uh, maybe there's a disability that you have to grapple with. Uh, that's, a, that's a real thing for me at the moment. Uh, I, many of you know I've got this vision impairment. Uh, slowly, my eyes are getting worse and worse. Uh, the other day, I got a, uh, well, in the last few weeks, I've had a series of connections uh, with uh, the, the NDIS, right? the National Disability Insurance Scheme that's rolling out. I mean, this is all really hard for me. Like, uh, I'm actually, I've actually got a disability. It's affecting me. It's a trial that I have to get used to. But I don't know about you, maybe you've got a physical trial too. Something that, that burdens you. Uh, maybe it's more of an emotional trial. Uh, perhaps you're depressed, you're, you're anxious, uh, you're grieving, uh, you're struggling with your mental health in, in other ways. Uh, maybe you, you've got a whole lot of relational trials. Uh, your, your marriage is struggling, uh, there, there's conflict in your family, uh, your kids, I can relate to this too, right? Your kids are just lovely but exhausting. Right? You, you just feel burdened by all these different relationships. Uh, maybe it's a spiritual trial. Uh, in some context in your life, you're suffering specifically because you're a Christian. Uh, you're the only Christian in your family. You're uh, getting some pressure in the workplace. Uh, you're perhaps ridiculed at uni. Or whatever it is, it's a kind of spiritual trial. Right, so that's my first question. Perhaps you've got something in mind as you sit here today. Uh, what is your biggest trial? The second question uh, is how are you responding to that trial? Uh, I wonder if you're angry or, or maybe you're in denial, a bit like me with my disability. Maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're depressed. Maybe you've got some hope, I don't know, maybe you're filled with despair. How are you responding to your trial? It's that second question in particular, really, that, that Peter's addressing in this passage. But how should these Christians respond to all the suffering and trials that they're experiencing? Uh, well, we don't have time to, to look at everything in this passage, uh, so I mainly want you to notice two things. Right? You, you can see them there, uh, first two points in the outline. Uh, I want you to see that, that as Christians we can grieve in suffering, uh, and yet we can have joy in suffering. That's what's the first. Peter says uh, we can and should grieve in suffering. Uh, look at verse 6. In verse 6, Peter says, uh, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief uh, in all kinds of trials. All right, I think some of us have to hear this, that, that, it's, that it's normal and right uh, to be grieved by suffering. Right? All suffering in this world is a sign that, uh, that this world is not as it should be. Right? That this world is like a, a joint that, that's dislocated, a bone that's fractured. Uh, the, there's pain. There, there's suffering. It's normal and right to, to grieve that pain. 
I say this because I've met some Christians who think that when suffering comes along, they've kind of just got to think positive. They've got to be all stoic. They've got to be strong. They've got to put a smile on their face and pretend that everything's okay. But that is not biblical at all. The Bible says we should be grieved by suffering. Suffering is like an alien intruder into God's good world. Suffering was not a part of God's original creation. It won't be a part of God's new creation. We can and should be grieved by suffering. So let me ask, does your kind of version of Christianity or or your particular worldview, perhaps, if if you're not a Christian, does it allow you uh, to grieve at suffering? Uh, Peter says that as Christians, certainly, uh, we can and should be grieved by suffering. Uh, But of course, there's another theme here, isn't there? Another response to suffering that far outweighs that the grief. Uh, Have a look in verse 3. Peter starts by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he says uh, that these Christians are rejoicing greatly. In verse 8, he says they're filled uh, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So so even though these Christians are grieved by their suffering, somehow uh, they're also filled with joy in suffering. I think we hear that. Uh, A lot of us, and it probably uh, stinks of fake Christianity. Isn't it? Like you're having a really hard time, you're going through uh, all sorts of suffering in your private life, uh, but you every Sunday turn up to church, you put on your happy Christian mask, and you just pretend that everything's okay, because it's not okay to not have your stuff together, to be suffering, to be having a hard time, right? That, 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 that is not what Peter's saying. He's not saying just pretend that everything's okay. He's not saying uh, just fake it. Right? He's just said it's normal and right to be grieved by suffering. And yet he is saying that, that there's something incredible about Christianity. Somehow, that if you're a Christian, you can experience this deep joy even as you grieve suffering. That's quite amazing. In the midst of suffering, you can experience this deep joy, this inexpressible joy, this glorious joy. Of course, when the Bible uses this word joy... It isn't, there's lots of overlap, but it's not quite the same as what our culture calls happiness. I was uh, reading a recent article in The Age, and it identified the top five things that bring happiness. Right, here they are, right, tick them off. Uh, you should be happy if you've got all these things. Right? Uh, these are the five things. Uh, number one, uh, being in possession of the basics. Food, safety, shelter, health. Right, and number two, uh, getting enough sleep. Well, that's why I'm not happy. <laughs> Young kids. Yeah. Uh, number three, uh, having relationships that matter to you. Uh, number four, taking compassionate care for others. Uh, and number five, having work that engages you. Right, so, so uh, I, I don't want what you notice about those five things, but I notice that in our culture, uh, happiness is all about how your life's going. It's all about the circumstances of your life. But really, you can only be happy if your life is going well. But that's not what Peter's saying, is it? 
Peter's saying Christianity offers you this deep joy even when life's not going well, even when you're grieved by suffering. Right? How's that possible? Well, he explains in verses 3 to 5. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. And he says the main reason we can have this joy in suffering is that we've got a living hope that can never be taken away. That's my summary of those verses. Let me read them again from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation uh, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice verse 3, Peter says that as Christians we should praise God. That's what these Christians should do. They should praise God even in their suffering uh, because in his great mercy, God has given these Christians new birth. Right, new, new life in their spirit. Uh, I've got two children, uh, and uh, neither of them have taken any credit, any glory for their physical birth. Right, because it wasn't their doing. Right, it was Gabby's doing. Likewise, Peter says here that these Christians should take no credit for their spiritual birth. It's not about them. It's not their doing. It's God's doing. It is amazing mercy. That God has given them this, this new spiritual life. And then Peter says uh, that it's because of this new birth that these Christians have a new hope. Right? He calls it a living hope. Now, we, uh, when we use this word hope, uh, we tend to use it very differently to, to how the Bible uses hope. Right? Like I might say, I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope that the traffic's not too bad on your way home from work, or I hope the kids don't get another cold. Right? That is just wishful thinking. But that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is talking about solid hope, sure hope, certain hope. And he says that this hope that, that, that we as Christians have uh, is both sure and certain uh, because it's through, it's based on, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right? It's based on the, the historical reality, the, the historical fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, of course, I understand that, that lots of people have doubts about the resurrection. Right? I have doubts about the resurrection sometimes. I understand that uh, because in my experience, uh, everyone I know who has died has stayed dead. Right? That, that's, that, I mean, that, that's my experience. The resurrection seems out there. How can it happen? And I know lots of people also have those doubts. And because people have those doubts, they, they tend to come up with different explanations for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, maybe it's a myth, a, a fairy tale that, that kind of developed, evolved uh, over centuries. Maybe uh, Jesus' disciples thought that they saw him, uh, but really they were just hallucinating. Right? It, it was a Jesus ghost. Uh, maybe uh, Jesus' disciples made up the resurrection to get fame or power or, or, or money. Right, so, so what I want to do now, like given that Peter's saying we have this living hope through the resurrection, I think it's important uh, that we kind of drill down on, right? do we think the resurrection is a reality that we can build our life on? So I want to give you four reasons uh, for why Jesus' resurrection uh, is an historical fact. Uh, these aren't the only ones, but they're four. 
Uh, and they come out of that uh, chapter that has been read from Luke chapter 24. So you, you might find it useful to have that uh, in front of you as well. Uh, if you look at that account, uh, you'll see in verses 1 to 12 uh, that the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, that they discovered the empty tomb, uh, were women. Now, that, that's important. Right? It's important but because in this culture, uh, most people didn't really trust women. In fact, Jewish and Roman courts uh, didn't even accept the testimony of a woman. Right? They were considered to be unreliable witnesses. So really, the only reason Luke would have said that these women were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection is if it was actually true. Like, why would he make up the story like that? If he, if he was making up the story, he would have picked some more reliable witnesses, like a, a respected pillar of the community. Instead, he picks these women. Weird in that culture. Uh, second, uh, notice how, how Luke keeps giving us specific names throughout the passage. Uh, these women, in verse 10, he says, uh, there are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna. Uh, in verse 18, he, say, he says, one of the men who walked with Jesus uh, was named Cleopas. Why, why, why mention the names? Because these names are like, like some of you are at university or if you've studied in the past and you have to do referencing, like footnoting. And, and this, this is what these names are like. They're, they're the ancient equivalent of footnotes. Luke's saying to, to the people who first read his gospel, uh, if you want to know if these things really happened, by the way, just check in with Mary or Joanna or Cleopas because they're still alive, you see. And that's why uh, Jesus' resurrection just can't be a myth that, that was made up years after the events. But it can't be. The accounts of Jesus' resurrection uh, were written when the eyewitnesses were still alive. That's why Luke puts the names in there. And Mary or Joanna or Cleopas uh, could have easily said, that didn't happen like that. It never happened. We went to the tomb and Jesus' body was there. Well, that would have put a dent in Christianity, right? But they didn't say that. Uh, the third thing, right, in verses 37 to 43, uh, there's that funny scene where Jesus eats some fish with his disciples. Uh, why include that? Well, Luke knows that some people will think Jesus' disciples were hallucinating, that, that they just saw a ghost. So he includes this story, like, like how many ghosts eat fish? I don't know, not many as far as I know, but not an expert, but... I figure you've got to have some kind of physical form to be able to eat things, not just be a spirit. Uh, finally, in verse 52, right, right at the end of the, the passage that we've got there, uh, Luke, Luke just notes that Jesus' disciples worshipped him. Uh, when I was at uni, I studied some philosophy, and one of the guys I read a little bit of uh, was named Thomas Kuhn. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but uh, Thomas Kuhn, he was uh, really interested in studying how changes happened over time, scientific changes, uh, philosophical changes. And what Thomas Kuhn said uh, was that usually there's an existing paradigm. Right? Some of you have heard that word, a paradigm. It's like an existing way of thinking about things. And so there's an existing paradigm, and everyone believes it. But what tends to happen is that someone comes along and they're saying some things that are a bit outside the existing paradigm. Uh, they're a bit quirky, uh, they're a bit of an outlier, and the people over here don't tend to like them very much. 
They get mocked, they get ridiculed. They go, well, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. Right? But there are some people over here uh, who think that this guy's onto something. And so over time, what happens is that a new paradigm develops. Right? They don't come all the way over here with quirky guy, but like there's some kind of middle ground that develops, and it's a new paradigm. But, but what Kuhn says is that that kind of change happens, that paradigm shift, typically over a generation or two. Right? It is very slow. And why is that important? Well, it's important because uh, Jewish people were the last people on earth uh, who'd be open to the idea that a human being could be God. Who'd be open to the idea that, that you should worship a human being. The Jews had a, had a particular way of thinking about God, a particular paradigm. God uh, was dis- so holy, so distinct from this world uh, that they couldn't even say his name, that they couldn't spell his name. There's no way God would, would be- take on human flesh, be worthy of worship. And yet here in verse 52, uh, we see that almost immediately uh, this group of devout Jews is worshipping Jesus. Straight away. Not over a generation or two, but immediately. I think the the most plausible explanation for such a rapid change is that these disciples actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. And they saw nothing blasphemous at all about worshipping him. And Peter's one of those guys. Peter, who's writing our passage, he's one of those Jewish men who had seen him raised from the dead and he's convinced that the resurrection is an, a, a, an a historical reality, right? It's a fact. A fact that gives us a solid hope, a living hope, a sure hope, a, a certain hope. That's what Peter's convinced of. And there's lots of other reasons I could give you, right? But, but I, I want you to be convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have this solid hope. Well, what exactly is this hope? Well, it's the hope of eternal life. Buddy, if you're a Christian, you can know like Jesus conquered death. So if you believe in him, you too will conquer death. Death is not the end. Death does not have the last word. You have eternal life. And by eternal life, I don't just mean some kind of spiritual existence. I don't mean reincarnation. I don't mean being absorbed into the great soul of the universe. I don't mean floating around on clouds, playing a harp and eating Philly cheese, or you know, I don't. Those, those ads are a bit old now. Like that's not what like eternal life is in the Bible. Eternal life is real. It's personal. It's physical life, embodied life. So where where do we live this life? Well, have a look at verse four. The, the, the background to, to the language of inheritance in verse four is what Peter said about uh, us being born again. Right? We've been born again by God's Spirit, uh, and so uh, we're God's children. Uh, we're a part of his family. Uh, and because of that, Peter says, uh, we share in God's family inheritance. Right? That's what happens when you're a part of the family, the, the biological family, you share in the family inheritance. Uh, spiritually, if you're born again, you share in God's family inheritance. What's this inheritance? Well, it's eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. That's what God's preparing for us. 
You can read about it in Revelation 21. But a completely new world, free from everything that grieves us about this world. All those trials you were thinking about it at the start, I hope. Right? Those are the things that this, they won't be a part of this world at all. So Peter says that because of our solid hope, uh, this wonderful inheritance, uh, uh, sorry, because of our solid hope, we've got this wonderful inheritance, and this inheritance is not in this world, you notice. It's not a part of this world. That's why he says it, it can never be taken away. It'll never perish or spoil or fade. No one can touch it. And that's significant, particularly for these Christians, because uh, these Christians are suffering for their faith, and many of them, in earthly terms, have lost their inheritance. Uh, they've lost their land, their, their, high, their house, uh, their possessions, their jobs. They've been completely cut off from family and friends. And yet Peter says, despite losing all that, they can praise God. They can praise God, and they are praising God. And they're filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy. And this is the great thing about being a Christian, because as, as Christians, uh, their joy isn't attached to, to having particular stuff in this world. I feel good because, uh, you know, Telstra, I went to Telstra store the other day, uh, and they, like, they always want you to get that new phone feeling, right? I don't know if you, any of you with Telstra, but like, that's joy, isn't it? Like, I, I must have a new phone every 12 months or my joy will dissipate. My joy is attached to the new phone feeling. Like, I've just got to have that, right? The next hit of joy, right? But Peter's saying our joy isn't attached to stuff in this world. It's not attached to how our life's going in this world. Our joy is attached to our heavenly inheritance, to our solid hope that we have because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So if that's you, if you're a Christian, that, that is your great hope. Right? No, no, matter, no matter how much suffering you experience, no, no matter how much you, you're grieved by that suffering, uh, you can still have joy. Because through Jesus', Jesus resurrection, you've got a solid hope that no one can take away. And really, that should lead you to be filled with wonder. That's what verses 10 to 12 are about. We can't unpack all of them, but have a look. Down at the end of verse 12, Peter says that this joy and hope that Christians can experience through believing in the gospel, that's what he's saying when he talks about trusting in the sufferings and glories of the Messiah, the death and resurrection of the Messiah, through believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, you have this hope and joy, and that is so wonderful, Peter says, that even God's angels long to look into it. They long to, to dwell on it, to contemplate it. They're kind of up in heaven, kind of talking about it amongst themselves. This is incredible, the angels are saying. But the angels get it. Peter's trying to help us to get it, help us to see just how wonderful it is to trust in Jesus and have this living hope. Of course, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or perhaps you haven't been to church for a long time, uh, you might still be thinking, well, well, I just don't quite, I haven't joined the dots. Or maybe you are a Christian, you just need to rejoin the dots. What, what's so wonderful uh, about trusting in Jesus? Uh, so I just want to, I want to finish by uh, uh, answering that, by explaining how three different people might respond to suffering. I want to show you how incredible Christianity is. Uh, the first is, if you're here today, and perhaps you're an average Aussie who's not a Christian, I reckon 
you've bought into two assumptions that dictate how you respond to suffering. Let me be so bold. Uh, The first is, uh, you probably assume uh, that this life is all there is. There might be an an afterlife, there might not, who knows. Uh, But generally speaking, uh, it's probably this is all there is. So while you're here, uh, you may as well maximise your pleasure and minimise your pain. I reckon that that's the first assumption that that most, uh, the average Australian has. This life is all there is, maximise your pleasure, minimise your pain. Uh, The second assumption uh, is that uh, deep down you're basically a good person. But you're not perfect, uh, no one is, uh, but you're pretty good, uh, you're probably better than most. Right, so the, the, those are the two assumptions. So I think that because you have those two assumptions, uh, when you inevitably do suffer, uh, you're much more likely, it's much more consistent with your worldview, uh, to get angry and bitter and be filled with despair. Why? Because you're convinced that the universe, that, that life, or however you conceive of these things, somehow uh, life owes you better than this. Why? But because you're a good person who deserves to experience pleasure and not pain. So how dare life throw this your way? On the other hand, there are probably other people here who identify as Christians, uh, but this whole idea of experiencing joy is completely foreign to you. You just don't know that you've experienced it at all, let alone in the midst of suffering. Now, of course, I don't pretend to understand all the specifics of your situation. Uh, People don't experience joy for all sorts of kind of multifactorial reasons, right? Uh, But let me just suggest that one of the reasons for your lack of joy could be that your heart is more shaped by religion than by the gospel. Because the the religious person is someone who basically thinks that, that if they follow God's rules, God will accept and love and bless them. If they don't follow God's rules, God will judge and punish and curse them. So when a religious person suffers, they, they typically think one of two things. They, they, if they've been doing a good job of following God's uh, rules, uh, they'll be angry, or if they think they've been doing a good job at least, uh, they'll be angry with God. Uh, because surely after all their obedience, their sacrifice, their service, God owes them better than this. If they think they've been doing a bad job of following God's rules, they'll be angry at themselves. Because they think their suffering is a sign that the God's judging them. He's punishing them for their sin. So a religious person really constantly yo-yos in the midst of their suffering between being angry at God, hating God, and being angry at themselves, kind of hating themselves. The person who trusts in Jesus, right? The, the Christian, the one who believes in the sufferings and glories of the Messiah, they're different to both those people. The average Aussie who's irreligious, couldn't really care about Christianity. Uh, the person who's very religious. Right? The, the Christian is different to both those people because the Christian uh, really never thinks that they deserve a life that's free from suffering. Right? The, the Christian knows that, that Jesus, right, that the only perfect person who has ever lived, suffered immensely. So how could a Christian expect more than him? And the Christian never thinks that that they're suffering because God's punishing them. 
Right? The, the, the Christian knows that, that Jesus has already been punished for all their sins on the cross. He's not punishing them. And the Christian never thinks that they're suffering because God doesn't love them. Right? They, they look at the cross and they see that God loved them so much that he sent his one and only son to die for them. By trusting in Jesus, being a Christian completely revolutionizes how you respond to suffering. On the one hand, you have full permission to grieve at suffering. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend. You know that suffering, all pain and suffering in this world is yet another sign that this world is not as it should be. It's broken. It's messed up. On the other hand, uh, you can have this deep joy even in the midst of suffering. Right? You can have that joy uh, because uh, of the historical reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, and you've got a living hope that, that no one can, can ever take away. Uh, so what does that mean? That, that means that, that if you're a Christian, uh, this world, uh, with all its junk, is as bad as things will ever be for you. This is as bad as it gets. You've got a glorious future, an incredible inheritance. For the person who doesn't have this living hope, this world is as good as it gets. And that's depressing, right? Let's pray that people would come to know this living hope. But I want you to see the wonder of what you have if you're a Christian. This world is as bad as it gets. And you have a glorious future, a great hope. And that's something that even fills God's angels with wonder. If you want to, like verses 10 and 11, it's something that filled the prophets of old with wonder. They wanted to know all about this. They searched intently, Peter says, but they didn't get the full, it wasn't fully revealed to them. It's revealed to us. It's revealed to you today through the preaching of the gospel. Not to them. Right? This is so wonderful. The prophets wanted to know, the angels longed to look at it. I hope this Easter it fills your heart with wonder too. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we, uh, we do pray uh, that, yeah, despite uh, any misspoken words or uh, things that I've said that weren't clear or, or helpful, uh, we pray that you would uh, achieve the purposes that you want to uh, with the preaching, uh, through the preaching of your word this day. In particular, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would fill us with great wonder at the, at the hope that we have, the solid hope, the sure hope, through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. Uh, please encourage us, Lord, uh, even if we have come this day really burdened by various, uh, by various trials, really grieving those things. I pray you would give us a, a, at least just a taste uh, of the inexpressible and glorious joy that these Christians are, we're experiencing. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.